0: pretty amazing concept when you think about all the writings of man and all the novels that have been written and all the imagination that's been poured into it and the best that we as men and women writers have been able to come up with is stories about people who were heroes because they died for their king. Our king died for us. Only God could come up with a story like that. So, this evening we're going to return to the book of Acts. And uh, we'll be picking back up in chapter 4. I've got that marked here somewhere. So, we'll pick up in verse 23. And read through 31 in a moment. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. So it's at this point we have covered the questioning, the persecution of Peter and John concerning the healing of this now formerly lame beggar who was outside the gate called Beautiful at the temple. And the Sanhedrin, after questioning... Peter and John have decided to release them. They decided to let them go. They threatened them and they threatened them again. And they decided that there was not a just cause to keep them or to punish them further. So so Peter and John are now returning to their companions and they're basically going to file a full report with them of everything that had happened. The main point in last week's study was a dependence upon God's sovereignty. And there was a secondary discussion of the apostles' willingness and ability to speak, preach, teach boldly. But doing that in the name of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Much credit was given to the work of the Holy Spirit in his provision of words. Making sure the right things were said. Even to the point of bringing the Sanhedrin To where they were speechless. They had no reply. And now we begin to see the response of the companions upon hearing the report of all that had happened to them. Two spirit-filled apostles in the standoff with the Supreme Court of their day. So if you would, please stand. And we'll just jump right in. So when they were released... They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priest and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Master, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. And grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders happen through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed earnestly, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with confidence. Father, we we thank you for your word. It's at this time that we... We dedicate this time to you and ask that you help us to understand your word and help us to apply your word to our lives. Lord, we ask that you have your way, that you'll take me out of your way, and that that your words will be spoken. Your revelation you've given to us will be taught. Father, I love you, and once again, I thank you for everyone who is here this evening. And uh, I pray this in Jesus, Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So in verse 23, and I apologize again. Verse 23 we read, so when they were released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. So, So we find Peter and John back in comfortable surroundings. We have every reason to believe that the formerly lame beggar has joined the community of believers there. Apparently, Peter and John issued a full report of the occurrence before the Sanhedrin. But you need to realize that they're not just among companions or friends here. They're back among family. You see, I look at everyone in this church, and if you're a believer here tonight, you are my brother or my sister. In blood, the blood of Christ, you are my brother or my sister. These people viewed that very much in the same way. This was a community of people of one accord. We're going to see that shortly. And and some people may say, well, you know, it's it's kind of a traditional thing to call so-and-so brother so-and-so and and, and sister so-and-so. But if you look in the book of Matthew, in chapter 12, starting at verse 47, and you can turn there if you like. I will read it to you either way. But we have a scenario where it reads, Now someone said to him, him is capitalized, so we're talking about Jesus here. Now someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mothers. Those of us who are believers in the family of God, we are the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. We're children of the King and heirs of Christ. And that's much to rejoice about. And if I think about it, just from a logical standpoint, I see you more than I see most of my natural family members. I see you twice a week for at least an hour. I don't know if I see my mother that often or not, and that's shameful in one hand, but that's dedication to the family that I have, right? I know I see you more than I see my sister or some of my aunts and uncles and cousins. You are my family. I think this is the view that they had of one another. Being family members, it should make it easier for them to be of one accord. For we find that they are all of one mindset. They're all in unity with one primary objective. Solidarity is their goal. But along with solidarity, persecution brings solidarity. Among the faithful... You will see people ushering toward that group when perilous times happen. If you have an earthquake, people become more religious. The churches will be more filled. Remember 9 11. My first Sunday at the church I used to go to was the Sunday before 9 11 happened. I never will forget it. You know, The church was about halfway full and 9-11 happened and that next Sunday we went and barely found a seat. You may have similar stories from where you were at church. But whenever we have persecution, we have trials, people tend to usher back toward the faith where they know they should be but sadly, most of those people will return back to the world. That'll last for a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, and you see those numbers starting to dwindle back down. It's very symbolic of the parable of the sower and sowing seeds, and the seed sprouted, and it was very robust and grew tall and, and then withered and, and it died. The churches were full after that event. Our nation was under persecution. Being in one accord, what are they all doing? How do, how do you show this being in one accord? Well, well, one thing they were doing, I'm sure they were rejoicing at the return of Peter and John, and they were unmarked. They hadn't been beaten, they had been imprisoned overnight. They were threatened, but they were released. And I'm sure they were rejoicing at their return. I'm sure that once they heard the report of what these two men had said before the Sanhedrin, that salvation only comes through one name. I'm sure they were rejoicing about that. Because that's a mission here. Spread the gospel. The Great Commission... So not only have they escaped; it's not like they slipped away in the night, but they were released. We'll see that uh, we've seen that there was no reason to keep them longer. So what was their report? They told them all that the chief priest and elders had said to them. And do you remember the main thing they told them? Back in verse 18. They commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John basically told them, we cannot help but speak of everything we've seen and heard. Oh, for the faith. Will we be able to say that one day when we stand in, in the trials of this life? Oh, for that. When any family member comes under assault the family of believers here they do what any faithful family should do they come together in unity and they pray <clears throat> excuse me they reach out to the father they reach out to the one who they know has sovereign control and in verse 24 it reads and when they heard this they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Master, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Here we have this the state of being one accord mentioned again. This time it's in application to, to the total agreement of this prayer that's being presented. And the family of believers respond to the news of what has happened to the apostles is prayer. It's, it's a, just prayer is a community prayer, if you will. It's them joined together in a prayer. The singular noun used in the Greek leads most of the Greek scholars to believe that one person prayed at a time. But maybe they took turns, I'm going to pray and then this person will pray. Have you ever been in a church where everyone prays at the same time? Have, have you ever experienced that? Aloud, I've seen the uh, the aisles and what we what's referred to as the altar here, this table we do the Lord's Supper on, filled with men and women on their knees and faces praying at the top of their lungs. And every time that I've seen this happen, it's almost like it becomes a competition of who can pray the longest. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be first. And it turns into something that I don't think it really was intended to be. It's confusion. It's a bit chaotic in a way. Because it's really hard to understand what anyone says. I guess you're just supposed to be focusing on your own prayer. I I don't know. But when, when Josh prays here from the pulpit, I don't know what everyone else is doing. But I'm joining along silently in agreement with what's being prayed. And when Jason does it, it's the same. And I I hope that when I do that, you're able to do the same with me. And I think that is the order that Paul even talked about, maintaining an order in your service. a visitor comes in, whether you're in tongues or not, for that matter, and and you've got chaos going on. Well, I I think we're going to try that other church today. And, And you're out, I mean, there's a sense of logic here, right? My point is is that only one person was raising their voice. The group was praying along silently or in some low volume of agreement in support of what was being prayed. It's entirely likely that turns were taken among the leaders of the group in leading the prayer. And this prayer begins with an interesting set of words. "O master, master, which is derived from the Greek word despotes, D-E-S-P-O-T-E-S, despotes. When you translate that word, it means absolute ruler, which is another symbol here of them recognizing the sovereignty of God. Any absolute ruler. It's total control. Total authority. Ultimate sovereignty. and Their emphasis is supported by the next word. It is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They're quoting the Old Testament here. <clears throat> and this is one of those verses that's quoted in a number of places. This, these words are used in a number of places. And we're familiar with words like the, the, the God of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac being used over and over again through the scriptures. This one is used over and over again too. You'll find it in Exodus 20, Nehemiah 9, Psalm 146. And there's even a couple of other ones that I didn't written down that are very, very similar These are words of sovereignty. These are words of authority. I mean, regarding God as a sovereign creator implies that no man, no number of men can stand against the creator of everything. The creature is going to defeat the creator, right? And also implied here is that the sovereign God has the sovereign right to rule his creation. As bad as it is to say, one of the funniest comedies I'd ever watched was this Bill Cosby thing called Himself. And um, I realize that he has a very bad image right now. But he said, "And, and my wife would look at my children and my dad would look at me and it's, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out and make another one just like you. When you're a sovereign God, you have that kind of control. Look at the days of Noah. There's a day that we have to look forward to when judgment will happen, and there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's really interesting that just a few weeks prior to this, the apostles had a very limited understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, especially when you try to apply knowledge of the Messiah from those scriptures. I mean, they understood what they had been taught by the Jewish leaders in the temple. But now, here we have them using the Old Testament scriptures preaching Christ, preaching salvation. Just more symbolic happenings, this event of God's sovereignty, of the Holy Spirit within them, exposing them to the wisdom that they need, to the knowledge that they need. Not only that, but they're teaching these Jewish leaders, right? They're using these Old Testament scriptures against the Sanhedrin, the chief high priest, the guru of gurus, is getting to hear the Old Testament scriptures interpreted in ways that says, hey, that guy you put on the cross, you need to kneel before him. These people were acknowledging that although the apostles had just been before the highest authority in the land, that God is sovereign and in control, and he is worthy of their submission. One of the commentators I read, uh, Boyce, Stated, and I'll have to read this, I can't can't quote it all. It says, as they began to pray, the scriptures rose up in them and they found themselves talking to God in God's own words. And then he goes on after that and says, when early Christians wanted to speak about Jesus Christ in their prayer to God, the words of the Bible seemed to just naturally come tumbling out. I'm not at that point yet. I'm trying really hard. man what level of faith and dependence do you have that those words and I tend to agree with Boyce when you read that prayer can can I within myself just pray the old testament scriptures that way no I cannot I might get a verse out maybe two at the best somewhere in there they're not too long but dependency upon the holy spirit is exposing them to what they're saying in the prayer just like the words were given to Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. I think that's the emphasis voice is making. And the prayer continues in verses 25 to 26. It says, Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devised vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ.'" Now this, this passage of scripture is found in Psalm chapter 2 and it's verses 1 and 2 if you want to reference those at some point. And this psalm is, is known by most commentators as referencing man's rebellion against God and God's response to the rebellion. Here in Acts only the verses referring to the rebellion are spoken or prayed. And the use of the verses in this prayer implies that David is prophesying... Not only concerning the rebellion he is facing as God's anointed himself, but more importantly, the rebellion Jesus Christ would face as God's anointed. And we've referred to such scripture a few weeks ago as like a dual application scripture because it's, it's rightly so interpreted that David did face persecution. You think about the times that he had with Saul. And Saul tried to kill him a number of times. And and God delivered David from Saul's hands. And and we see Jesus similarly. And they sought to stone him. And he, he escaped through the crowd. It's almost as though he mysteriously disappeared. He was uncatchable. Because it was not his appointed time, right? In Psalm 2, 1 through 3, Spurgeon states... It is little wonder that the sight of creatures fighting God amazes the psalmist. Where there is much rage, there is generally some folly, and here it is excessive. They set themselves to withstand the prince of peace, end quote. The psalm is quoted in other places as well. You'll find it in Acts again, chapter 13, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 5, Revelation 2, Revelation 19. And, and this is kind of, these two verses are kind of hard to read. It's like a long, run-on sentence. And you really got to pay attention to the punctuation to keep up with where you're at and who's talking about what. But it's, it, when we think about it, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things? And how does this apply to Christ? So we have to think back to Jesus' trial. And didn't we hear people raging at that time? We will not have this man to rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him is what they cried. Crucify him. They were raging against the Christ. And didn't they spit on him and curse him and slap him and pull his beard? Didn't they mock him by clothing him in a purple robe? and putting a crown of thorns on his heads, and presenting him as the king of the Jews. Obviously, the people did rage, right? Devise vain things is the next word spoken here. And and this is is a verse that when you read over that, you kind of understand what these words mean, but you tend to read past them without thinking about them so much. Devise vain things, you could easily say Imagining useless things. Imagining useless things. They're going to they're put a plan together and they're going to imagine all this plan and what they're going to do and they're going to put it in place and find out that it's absolutely useless. Mindless or empty attempt to do something to God's Messiah and to try to stop God's plan when considering God's sovereignty and the universal power the scheming of these kings and rulers against God and his Messiah is simply just, well, I don't know how else to put it. It's just extraordinarily stupid as far as I'm concerned. The creature is going to dethrone the creator. Psalm 2.4 is not covered here. It's not used in chapter 4 of Acts. But it were. It provides a clear picture of what God's response is to all this imagining useless things and and devising of these silly plans and Gentiles raging. Verse 4 in Psalm 2 reads, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. This may be the only time that we have a an image spoken of in the scriptures where God is laughing out loud like this. I'm sure there are times where he's expressing joy, but a, a vivid laugh. My, my grandmother would call it one of those belly laughs, you know. And it really deep down humor. The creature is going to overtake the creator somehow. Verses 27 and 28 For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. This is a bit of a hard verse to read when you really stop and think about it. It's another bit of a run-on sentence. It's got lots of commas in it. What refers to what. But verse 27 is a bit of an explanation of verses 25 and 26. And I'll go through that in just a minute. But it starts out with the words, for truly in this city. And this has an implication that you would read right past. Something that you probably wouldn't think about immediately. But in Luke 13, starting at verse 31, we find Jesus being approached... By some Pharisees. And that's not uncommon. But what these Pharisees are telling him. Is a little different from what we normally hear out of the Pharisees. In Luke 13 verse 31. And it reads just at the time. Just at that time some Pharisees approached. Saying to him Jesus. Leave and go from here. For Herod wants to kill you. They're telling Jesus to leave because Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it is not possible that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Jesus not only prophetically foretold of his death, He's clearly foretelling where his death is going to occur. Probably wasn't clear to anyone when he said this. But looking back at it, he's the next prophet to be killed in Jerusalem among a high numbers of others that have faced their death there. And quite honestly, many more believers will be martyred there before it's over. Did anyone catch the statement concerning finishing on the third day? And on the third day I finish. I think somewhere there's an implication there and I can't theologically prove it to you, but on the third day what happened? He arose, right? The battle against death is over. Just one of those things that caught my eye. You can, you can call me wrong if you want to, it's okay. We need to understand that verse 27 is, is an explanation of verse 25 and 26. And the connections from these two verses and verse 27 are this. <clears throat> Excuse me, Herod represents the Hebrew authority, and this would, this would be the representative in verse 26 that they called the rulers. Pilate represents the Roman authority. And in verse 26, it refers to the kings. Gentiles represented in verse 25, of course, by the Gentiles. And you could say that these were the Roman soldiers or other people that were there that were not of the Jewish belief. But other Gentiles that were there. And Israel. This represents all of the Jewish followers who shouted crucify him in these very same streets. It's representative of the people, the people of Israel. Within this prayer, we can see clearly that the believers had true convictions that are revealed. The believers believe firmly in the sinlessness of Jesus Christ in these verses. Their prayer refers to Jesus as the holy servant, sinless. They believe Jesus Christ's messiahship. The prayer states against his Christ. Christ translated means messiah. They believe that through the cross Jesus accomplished the purpose of God. This prayer is spoken with a voice of victory, not defeat. And they clearly held firm convictions concerning sovereignty, wisdom, and even God's government. Jesus has all authority, right? In verse 28, we find the prayer containing a statement of confirmation that Jesus' death occurred as the result of God's power and plan and had been decided beforehand. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, this plan was in place. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, God planned, knew, ordained who he was going to save. God's predestining of events like this and actions, this is a basic presupposition of the early Christians. And this will carry on even into the early centuries. And we see the reformers, when, 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 when there was this push away from the Catholic Church in the Reformation by Martin Luther and many others, They believe like the apostles did, and we find ourselves here today very much in a minority, if you will, believers who believe what they believed. We want to believe the scriptures. There's things in here I don't like. There's things in here I don't know why God feels like he does about some of these things. I don't have to understand those things. All I have to do is know that this is the standard. this is the moral law. this is God's law, and I can either accept it or not, and I've decided, okay. I'm going to do that. I believe it. I don't have to understand it all. I don't understand everything in the laws of this land either. At least at least this book's only 1,400 and some pages long, I think. One bill that goes through Congress now will be 2,500 pages. I mean, it's reams and reams of paper. I don't agree with all those either, by the way. This serves as a key to their confidence. They view God's sovereignty as a, a reason for assurance. It gives them hope. God is sovereign. There's always hope. Throughout the scriptures, it's been shown that God can and will carry out his perfect will through a rebellious people. I think about my very life. You know, one of the the first things I have to pray at home alone is why you would choose a wretched man like me to try and do what you're trying to use me to do. I will never understand the life that I've lived and the things that I've done. And here I am doing this tonight. God is sovereign. He's in control. It's pretty interesting that that in doing this, God will even use people that hate him more than their mortal enemies. And that's hard to kind of register when I say that. Shouldn't it be surprising to us that Herod and the people of Israel aligned with Pilate and the Gentiles there to have Jesus killed? And we've been taught over and over again the the very reason that they didn't accept Jesus as their Messiah. They wanted the Messiah to come in and wipe the Romans out, get them out of our holy city. But because he was not doing what they wanted him to do. See, he came to save them from their sins. He came to save them from eternal damnation. They wanted him to save them from the Roman occupation. And they hated him so much for that that they aligned with their mortal enemies and hung him on that cross and killed him. I mean, it's just kind of an amazing story when you think about it. I mean, can you imagine us aligning ourselves with Iran, Russia, North Korea? I mean, that's what's happening here in, in the Jews aligning with their enemy, the Romans. But we remember that the Sanhedrin was kind of bought and paid for, right? Right? They wanted him to save Israel. He tried, he came, and he died for those that will believe in him. Christ even said, John 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And I can't help but think about the crucifixion for a moment. I mean, this act of the crucifixion is one of the most beautiful, sacrificial things that has ever been done. God gave his only begotten son so that a sinner like me could be saved. There's nothing more merciful, forgiving. There's nothing more that anyone could do than to give their only son to die for you. And at the same time, this is the most heinous act that man has ever done. The only truly innocent person that ever walked on this earth died the death of a common thief. Only in the sovereignty of God can you have both of those exist. God's purposes prevail, and I'm going to continue on through the prayer're at verse 29. We'll read on through 31. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and, and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders happen through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed earnestly, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with confidence. In verse 29, we find the prayer's content Turning to a petition before God. They prayed all this, and here at the end they're asking. And it's amazing that uh, they're petitioning before God that they'll be able to do what they've been commanded not to do, right? Do not speak in that name, do not teach in that name, do not preach in that name. And they want to do it with even more confidence. Implied in this prayer is an eagerness to continue to preach and teach the good news of Christ. And to fulfill the great commission. They pray for this even knowing that they had been promised more persecution to come. If they continue to speak in that name. The prayer continues in requesting that more miracles will be shown in their future work. And they're not requesting this to show authority or power of themselves or look how godly I am they're asking for more opportunities to proclaim Jesus more opportunities for people to find salvation more opportunities to see the lost saved the lost sheep to come in their full intention is to pronounce to everyone that these miracles are the work of God through the name and power of Jesus Christ The requesting of the miracles implies that they know it is God and God alone who determines if and when these miracles will occur. So at this point, we've seen a miracle of healing performed through the apostles. Looking forward in the book of Acts, we're going to see demons cast out, miracles within nature in chapter 16, Angels appearing to help apostles in chapters 5 and 12. We're even going to see the raising of the dead in chapter 9. After their petition for more confidence and for the miracles to continue, the prayer ends. <clears throat> and it's, this, it's at this point, almost immediately, we're told that the building they are in was shaken. And some commentators call it an earthquake, and some commentators view it as though God shook the building. I don't know the answers to all that, but the building being shaken, it sounds a lot like an earthquake, even if it was isolated to just that building. But we know who did it. And this was clearly another sign to those in prayer. And most commentators would say that this sign happened to confirm that their prayers had been heard. A confirmation that Your petitions are going to be granted. Other commentators simply attribute it to being something similar to the sound of that rushing wind we talked about back on the day of Pentecost. That is similar to that. My personal opinion is it's both. I believe both are true. I believe God did it. I believe the house shook. I believe it was a sign of what was to come for them. I believe it was a confirmation. But this event should not be construed as though the Pentecost has happened again. This is not a second Pentecost. It's an experience that assured them of the ongoing significance of that unique event that happened before for their lives and for their ministries. As written, it appears that all the apostles, they've all begun to speak boldly and confidently. It's not just Peter and John. John. I'm assuming that it's all the other apostles with them and uh, most likely all the believers that are with them. Prayer is obviously an important part of the lives of these early Christians and the first thing they did upon hearing the report from Peter and John was to go to the Lord in prayer. And while I find this entire prayer very intriguing, I think I find it mostly, you know, almost as intriguing to consider what they did not pray for. Prayer does not state that they need to be delivered from these Jesus haters. The prayer does, is, is a request for more strength, for more confidence to continue to boldly speak and preach and teach. in the name of Jesus Christ. This is sovereignty recognized. it's sovereignty honored and obedience in action. There, there's a, an old saying that I think is attributed to the Crusade, so I'll be really careful here. I'm, but it was something about don't pray for an easy life. Pray for the strength to endure a tough one. I think that's what we're seeing here in this prayer. This prayer can be used as a model prayer. Um, and I asked myself the question, what exactly are your prayers supposed to look like? How should we pray? And in Matthew chapter 6, We find the Lord's Prayer there, which is a model prayer that we should all be familiar with. But It's interesting, starting in verse 5, it contains some points here concerning prayer before it gives us the example. In verse 5, it warns us not to be like the Pharisees who stand and pray to be seen by men. The implication is that we should not use public prayer as a, a statement to show off our holiness or our goodness or... One should not pray with the intention of being recognized as, as great men or women of the faith and great people of prayer. Verse 6 states that our prayer should be presented from our inner room or, or what some of us might call our prayer closet or, or maybe we have a study or a location at our house or on our, our place where that we do our praying. And, and it states that we should pray in secret, that the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you And this is a testament that God judges us for what's on the inside. Does your true belief only come out on Sunday morning? At some point on your way here, it becomes a reality. And you come to church and on your way home, it's a fantasy again. Is it real? Is it every day, all day, every day? I think this is a testament of, of God looking within us. God judges the heart. Verse 7 states that our prayers should not be filled with meaningless repetition so that you may be heard by your many words. And I'm guilty here. What's your prayer sound like at night when you lay down? What's it sound like at the dinner table? I'm guilty here. I'm not doing it necessarily to be heard for my many words, but there's a lot of repetition in my prayer and, and maybe there's only so much variance I can put in there, but I take the easy way out and just say the same thing I said yesterday. That's a little bit, that's not from the heart really, is it? That's kind of more like a legal. I've got to pray, so here you go. Before giving us instructions on how to pray, God through his word, the word of his son Jesus Christ, warns us on how not to pray. The first three verses before are warnings against prayer to elevate oneself. I think that is the key in these that we need to be cautious of. Verse 8 informs us that the Father knows that we, he needs, <clears throat> excuse me, what we need, he knows before we even ask. Why is that so hard for me to say? The Father knows what we need, before we even ask him this informs us that our prayer will not come across as a surprise to the father he's omniscient right more easily stated all-knowing he knows everything and then Christ offers the model prayer beginning with verse 9 and and the Lord's prayer is not given to us as though we should simply repeat these words our father and we go through it I and mean, it's almost like doing the rosary at some point if you're but but this, this model prayer is offered as an example of what proper prayer structure looks like. Take, for instance, verse 9 Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed is your name. The prayer begins with our, our recognition of God's power. It recognizes his attribute of holiness. This word hallowed is not common, but what it means is consecrated to a sacred use, treated as sacred or holy. So we've got recognition of his power, a father who's in heaven, holy, you're holy. And I, I don't think it would be improper as we're praying. Let's imagine that we're disturbed for whatever reason. So when we start our prayer, we start our prayer with recognizing the attribute of God in his peace. You, you are the prince of peace. I need you in this trial of my life. It's not inappropriate to reach out toward those attributes of God that you need. You need help with. This is not mandated, but I think it is appropriate. And the model prayer in Matthew 6 it then goes on in verse 10. And it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven And implied here is the person praying, wanting to be with God, wanting to be in his kingdom. But more than that, to see the growth of God's kingdom here on earth. And this could be in reference to the coming of the new Jerusalem in our prophetic text that we read. It shows desire for God's will to be completed here on earth just like it is in heaven. And Jesus prayed this way. What he say in the garden of gethsemane Not my will but your will be done Matthew 26 Verse 11 reads give us this day our daily bread and this is a request of provision and maybe it's a material provision that we need and maybe it's a spiritual provision the bread of life that we need God is our provider we need to recognize him as such. Jehovah Jireh is his name, our provider. Matthew 6.12 is a request for forgiveness from our debts. And one could say sins here. And to verify or confess that we have forgiven those indebted to us. Those who have been sinned against us. And the thing we need to recognize here is your sins and the sins of others need to be covered in prayer. And, and as far as forgiveness is concerned, you don't have to wait on somebody to come ask you for it to forgive them, right? We don't have to wait for them to ask for it. It's godly for them to do that. And, and the, the church discipline thing says that, if Josh, if you offend me, I need to approach you. This is the right way. But it, it doesn't say that I can't forgive him. Before you even ask. That's, that's the right way, right? And then we have Matthew 6.13 is, is a petition to keep us from performing evil or being evil. But we, we see that God is concerned about the intentions of our heart. He's, he wants us to worship in spirit and truth. He's not concerned about our great abilities to orate prayer in public. He's concerned about what's in our heart. He wants us to come to him with sincerity in our prayers, of what's in our heart to be sincerely poured out to him. He pleads for us to bring our petitions before this throne of grace. He's our father. Of course he wants to hear from us. He's our father, right? I can remember when my children were learning to talk. And one of the cutest things I think you'll ever see is is, is the one-year-old, the two-year-old, and, and they're trying to form sentences and words, and they come out backwards and upside down and sentence structures off the wall, and they, they say things meaning one thing, and it sounds like something else. And, you know, th- those were very enjoyable times. Nothing to be cherished more from our children than the moments of pure truth like that. That's what it was. They were not able to pronounce words correctly. The sentences were out of whack. And and I found these moments to be quite entertaining at the time. And there's nothing more in this world, nothing more endearing than those moments when I look back at them. Do you not think God our Father looks upon us the same way while we're learning to pray? If you think you love your child, he loves you more. You're doing the best you can. You're saying your prayers. You're trying to pour your heart out to him. He loves that. He wants that. I wanted nothing more than for my kids to find comfort in coming to Jackie and I. I wanted them to bring me those concerns of their hearts. You think God doesn't feel the same way about us? Do you think for one minute that that's not what he desires from us? and this is all still true today it may be even more meaningful today now that my children are older when they come to me and say dad I love you I mean it meant a lot when they were these little guys but now that they're old enough to really know what they're saying and they say it anyway do you not think God feels the same way about us do you think he doesn't want to hear you say that not just when you're in the Sunday school class or in front of the, the group or the thing, but while you're by yourself, do you talk to him? Do you really pour your heart out to him? That's where spiritual growth happens. I've been reading these books, and, and I'm not going to recommend for theology because some of these guys are not a little not lined exactly with us. But when you take the Raven Hills, you take the E.M. Bounds, and, and you take Joette, and even Andrew Murray to some degree. And these are great men of prayer. And they've got these things to say in these books about just how deep their devotion to God is. Ravenhill was very influential with with Paul Washer. He talks about Leonard Ravenhill quite often. Now, as I read through some of his books, I think there's a theological slant there that I don't know I'm exactly aligned with, but there's not enough there for me to make a decision. So if you go pick up one of his books, use it with caution, but we're all educated enough here that I think we can read through that. But if you need help with your prayer life, there's probably no one better than E.M. Bounds. Just men of prayer. One of those writers said in his book that you could put a dead man before me that I'd never seen in my life and I don't know, and I could take one look at his body and tell you whether he's a man of prayer or not. And I'm reading this thinking, okay, here we go. I I finally found it. He said the first thing he would do is look at the the structural build of the person. Does he look weak? Because a man of prayer is up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and he's up late at night praying for his family, praying for for God to help him. And over time, a great man of prayer will become weaker because he's spending so much time on his knees. And he said, if I fail to be able to figure it out, then I'll pull his pants up and I'll measure the calluses on his knees. He said, I'll be able to tell you whether he's a man of prayer or not. And he even went on to talk about a good friend of his who was a prayer warrior. He said, the man's wife asked him, said, will you come into his study and and see if there's anything here that's yours or anything that you really want. And He said, I walked into that room, and he said, it just overtook me being there. And he said, there was this one spot in the room that I just knew, <coughs> excuse me, I just knew that this was that place where that every night and every morning he would kneel down. He said, I just knew it was that place. And when I looked at the floor, it was almost as though there were discolorations like it was ruts because those are the same places where his knees had been for years and that the tears had stained the floor. He said, this is what great men of prayer do. This is what people who pray do. They do it with sincerity. It's not just a formality. So my prayer for us today is I've really, really struggled (coughs) with my prayers. I'm so thankful to have some relief in that. I'm so thankful. I think the the guilt that my old man carries with me at times prevents me from realizing what God has made me today. And it brings a level of humility that is very healthy, but it can cause stumbling at times too, if you're not careful. My prayer is that we'll all become prayer warriors, people, not afraid, to throw down on our knees and lift our fellow people up in prayer, the saved and the unsaved, the people in need spiritually, financially. We're family. The least we can do is pray together. The least we can do is pray for one another. Amen. Is anyone here tonight who has any concerns or questions involving your salvation, sanctification, Please come and see the leaders of the church. We would love to spend some time with you in prayer and searching the scriptures together. That's why we're here. We love you, and I thank you very much for your attendance. Father, we thank you for this evening you've given us. Your word is a blessing to us, as always. I thank you for these these people, the members of your church, my family members. Lord, I thank you so much for them coming. I thank you for their support. And Lord, we we thank you so much for all you do, but most of all for Jesus Christ, through whom salvation is is the only way, it's the only name in which we can be saved. Father, I ask that you take each one of us home safely tonight, and you'll bring us back at the next appointed time, Lord. And I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people sin. Amen.